time for episode 603 of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes the not-so-classic genre cinema of yesteryear. This is Monster Kid Radio, and I'm your writer, host, producer, Derek M. Cook. Welcome to the show. Now, I know that this is a show that talks about movies of yesteryear, but this week we're doing something different. We're talking about a brand new movie because I love kaiju films. I'm a big fan of all things tokusatsu, and I'm a huge fan of Ultraman. And this week on the show, I'm going to take a look at Shin Ultraman, which is the brand new Ultraman movie that got an extremely limited theatrical run in the U.S. here just this week. I'm excited to dive into this movie and talk about it and just kind of gush a little bit about Ultraman. Y'all know I love my Ultraman. You know who else loves Ultraman? Mark Matsky. He's got his Beta Capsule review coming up. We have Kenny's look at Famous Monsters, a film might come up, and we even have some emails. Let's dive into that right now. This email comes from somebody calling himself Bad Shark Blackhand. Dear Derek and Beth. Oh, really sweet of you to include that. Thank you. Dear Derek and Beth, I'm a longtime listener, but this is the first time I'm writing feedback. I really enjoy MKR when Derek has a guest to discuss the specific movie or movies of subject interest. I have three suggestions for creepy clowns. Okay, so what he's referring to here is last week I had Beth on the show and we were talking about the movie The Raven, the classic film with Lugosi and Karloff from the 30s. And somehow that conversation kind of sidelined and evolved a little bit. We started talking about creepy clown movies and she is developing a haunt, a haunted house, for this year's haunted house attractions. Attractions... Yeah, I did say more than one. She designs multiple houses and attractions for Scaregrounds PDX. And, well, she does freelance work as well and designs houses and haunts for other people. But anyway, something she's doing for Scaregrounds PDX is they're designing a kind of a mini haunt with lots of clowns. And she mentioned that she's trying to look into the history of creepy clowns in cinema. And these are three suggestions that came in from Bad Shark Blackhand. Conrad Veidt as Gwyn Plain in The Man Who Laughs from 1928. Jack Nicholson as the Joker from Batman from 1989, and Conrad Veidt again as Caesar in well, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. He put the German title, and I don't feel up to trying to do a German accent. But that's also from 1920. Y'all know what I'm talking about. You know, I think I mentioned The Man Who Laughs when Beth brought this up. And then you think about The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, I suppose. There is the, uh, the the carnival-ish, sideshow attraction-ish vibe to that. So that, yeah, that, that clearly counts, I think. Uh, I'm going to be seeing Beth later tonight. Uh, I'll ask her then if she's familiar with that film. Anyway, Bad Shark Blackhead continues. Oh, and this is in reference to my discussing my experience, or lack thereof, of the Vincent Price, Edgar Allan Poe, Corman films. Derek, I'm a huge fan of Vincent Price and Poe's works. As you probably know, Roger Corman did an octet of Poe-inspired films in the 1960s. I think they are all worthy of discussion on MKR. These films include House of Usher from 1960, The Pit and the Pendulum from 1961, Tales of Terror from 1962, and this combines the stories Morella, The Black Cab, The Cask of Amontillado, and The Facts in the Case of M. of Valdemar. Premature Burial from 1962, which is actually a Ray Milan film instead of Vincent Price. The Haunted Palace 
1963, which is really H.P. Lovecraft's Case of Charles Sexter Ward. And I actually think I have talked about this one here on the show. I have seen this movie. I really enjoy this movie. It's stellar. Anyway, The Raven from 1963, which is Bad Shark Blackhead's favorite price film, The Mask of the Red Death from 1964, and Tomb of Ligeia from 1964 as well. I've seen The Pit and the Pendulum, Tales of Terror, and The Raven more times than I can count. I'd love to hear them covered on MKR. Although I have no theatrical background, I'd be able to help research and present these films, especially The Raven, on your podcast if you're interested. Sincerely, Bad Shark Blackhand. You know, I'm always looking to add new voices to the mix, so yeah, let's do something. Be happy to have you on the show, especially if you're a huge fan of these movies, to talk about them. One thing that I... I'm trying to decide about the future of Monster Kid Radio is whether or not we're going to do the month-long themes as we've done in the past. In fact, I believe there's still a little time left, and even if officially there's not, I'm going to leave it open for a couple of days anyway. I'm doing a, a listener survey for Monster Kid Radio, and one of the questions was, do you like the month-long themes? Do you like it when I do Lucha de Mayo? Did you like it when I did Dan Sember, which was a bunch of Dan Curtis films? That sort of thing. Would a Corman Poe run, like month or, or series, be something you'd want to hear on the show, dear listener? Please let me know by either sending me an email at monsterkidradio at gmail.com or fill out the listener survey. Like I said, I'm going to leave it open for a couple of days, even though it's technically past the due date, at tinyurl.com slash survey 2022 uh, This is all available on our website at monsterkidradio.com. Net. Bad Shark Blackhand, thank you for writing in. I really appreciate it. I had another email as well. This one came in from our friend Kevin Slick over at kevinslick.com, regular at Monster Bash as well, and previous guest of Monster Kid Radio. He writes, first things first, have Beth on more often, please. I'm planning on it, sir. I greatly appreciated her insights and observations, bringing in a wider scope of horror, mystery, and fantasy than we sometimes hear in Monster Kid fandom. I am much more interested in the socio-political and cultural connections than a lot of the strictly film-based references, meaning sometimes in fan articles or podcasts, I hear a lot of what other films an actor or director did, rather than talking about the plot or the characters and how they fit in the larger picture of fantastic storytelling. You know, that is something that I really strive to do. I, I know I'm not always successful, but I, I do find the podcasts and the blogs and the YouTube videos and such that do more than just basically recite something they found on the internet movie database to be more interesting. There's a place for that, and, and they're successful, and a lot of people like that. But I do want more than just a, a breakdown of, this movie starred all these people and was directed by this guy. You know what I mean? I, I do like to kind of get a little bit into the what's really going on, the behind the scenes, um, the, well, like you said, the socio-political cultural connections. I've said this repeatedly on the show, and I'll, I'll say it again, that these movies, especially these older movies, well, shoot, you know what? I'm going to say every film is like this. They're not just pieces of entertainment. They are snapshots into uh, the cultural expectations and mores and norms of the time. You watch a movie from the 1930s and you see how people dress and how people act, the language they use or the language they don't use. And you can infer from that what things might have been like for certain groups of people or people who lived in certain areas or whatever 
uh, during that time. That's one of the things that I love about these movies is it's great storytelling. It's great acting and performance and direction and all of that. The monsters are super cool. The music's fantastic. But they're also snapshots of the history. And I love that so much. All right. Kevin continues. Totally get your thoughts on Karloff. He did play a ton of roles where he's the misunderstood, quote-unquote, monster. Roles that break that, speaking of the Black Cat, glad that's on the list. Love that one. I'm a huge fan of the Universal Karloff, Lugosi films. I love a good 60 to 70 minute film. No wasted moments, simple stories, no extraneous side plots that clutter things up. You know what? I'm right there with you, man. Love these movies so much. I would even go as far as saying, though, that even something like The Raven, and I think The Black Cat has this too. I don't know if I'd consider it a full-on side plot, but there are side characters that just kind of fill space. Like in The Black Cat, I'm sorry, not The Black Cat, in The Raven, there's the colonel and his wife, and he's kind of there as the funny, ha-ha, little overweight, let's laugh at him kind of dude who can't sleep and he snores, so he asks Lugosi's character for some sleeping powders. A little extraneous, but, you know, it, it kind of flavors the film in a way by giving you that moment of levity or at least not so dark <laughs> moment that, that kind of makes everything feel more texturally entertaining and fulfilling. I hope that makes sense. All right. Kevin's email continues. Poe films. We probably need two lists. Ones that use the title of a Poe poem or story purely for attention and ones that actually try to follow the story more or less, mostly less. I think the first category would have most of the films. These universal ones are certainly there, suggested by the immortal Poe classic. Yeah. If 1935's The Raven was suggested by that poem, then Manos was suggested by The Odyssey. And, oh man, the images I got in my head when I read that the first time, Kevin. It does speak to a different time when the average person would recognize the name of Poe. These days, films are based on old or not-so-old TV shows. Make of that progression what you will. Fascinating. The history of Hollywood fascinates me. Where a lot of these classic films come from, I know that uh, there's always that talk about how remakes are nothing new in Hollywood. They've been with us forever. And if you go all the way back, you can see remakes from the very beginning. But I would argue that a lot of these remakes from early Hollywood history are less remakes and more just another adaptation of some previously published source material. Multiple versions of the Maltese Falcon, for example, doesn't mean that one was a remake of another, which was a remake of another or whatever, just they adapted the material again, which happens a lot. There go Frankenstein movies, Dracula movies, movies about Jesus. You know, they're just adaptations of previously existing material, not remakes of one another. Anyway, uh, let's see back to the email. I'm about to get on a soapbox. Let me back off from that soapbox slowly. Don't feel bad about having not seen 1963's The Raven. You haven't missed much. Okay. A differing opinion than the previous email. While I appreciate the sardonic humor and Corman essentially sending up the genre, including his own work, I don't think it's all that punny. Maybe it just doesn't hold up well for me. 1939's Ninochka, which you mentioned, is a funny movie that is still funny, I think. And you get to see Lugosi in a big-budget film. True, he plays a humorless Soviet bureaucrat, which isn't that far from horror, but he's great. For his further stretch from his typecast roles, The Mystery of the Mary Celeste is probably the best, although in The Black Cat and The Invisible Ray, you get him as more the same character between himself and Karloff. 
The Mystery of the Mary Celeste, super early Hammer film. Talked about that many, many, many moons ago when I was on the 1951 Downplace podcast with Scott and Casey. Uh, interesting movie. I always feel like every time I've watched it, and I've watched it more than once, that it's incomplete. Like the version we have is missing a reel or missing some material. But I do love it, and I do love seeing Lugosi that early in his career playing such a different character, uh, the kind of character that you might associate him with from his, like, 50s run of movies. So, really cool movie. And The Black Cat, of course, brilliant film. And The Invisible Ray, which I've never talked about here on the show, every once in a while it comes up between conversations with me and Craig Beam, fellow podcaster, writer, content creator, and local Pacific Northwest uh, dude, I guess. Uh, <laughs> uh, fellow person up here. I uh, did bring it up at one point, and I know several years ago we kind of went back and forth trying to find a time to talk about it. just never quite worked out. Craig, if you're listening, I'd still love to talk about The Invisible Ray with you at some point, my friend. I think that'd be a lot of fun. Good call on The Man Who Laughs for Creepy Clown-like Makeup. Cheney Sr.'s clowns were heroes of the films, but both he who gets slapped and laugh clown laugh feature old school makeup that is pretty wild yeah cheney senior's makeup was fantastic a step above like so far ahead of his time in some places so uh manos <laughs> a manos bachelor party obviously this would include women in flimsy nightgowns wrestling somewhere in the desert and of course roast hand of torgo for the main course not sure if there's a vegan version of roast torgo but perhaps extra firm tofu cut into hand sheets could do the trick okay i i don't know if i need to okay i do need to know what that's like maybe i do need to plan a monos bachelor party although i really suspect instead of a bunch of women in flimsy nightgowns fighting somewhere in the desert while munching on tofu formed hands it would really just be me sitting around watching monos uh, while eating popcorn in my living room with Wednesday in my lap. This all came up when I was threatening to show Monosans of Eight to Beth. Uh, Kevin's email concludes with, Regarding Monos, when Joel from Mystery Science Theater 3000 was at Monster Bash, my son asked him about how they choose films, to which he replied, They have to be bad enough to make fun of, but not so bad as to be painful to watch. What about Monos? His son replied. Joel's response? Okay, kid. You got me. Oh, 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 man. You know, Mystery Science Theater 3000 and Monos the Hands of Fate are going to be forever linked for all of us film fans. I am one of those weirdos that loves Monos the Hands of Fate straight. I don't need it Rift. I've watched the Rift. I own the Rift DVD release of it, but I also own Monos the Blu-ray restoration, and I've probably watched that a lot more. I just love that movie. There's something about it that's magical to me. I know better. I know I shouldn't. I know the movie's flawed, and it's got all sorts of issues, and traditionally, if the issues and monos appeared in any other movie, I'd consider it a detriment or a negative. But there's just something magical about what Monos the Hands of Fate is that draws me in. Maybe I need to examine it from a socio-political or cultural point of view. Kevin, thank you for writing in. And I know that uh, we've talked about having you back on the show in the future as well. If we do like a month of Corman Poe, I mean, you're going to be one of the ones I reach out to. So. Anyway, that's the email that we got this week. I appreciate everybody writing in. Again, you can email me at monsterkidradio at gmail.com. 
Let's go ahead and move on with the show and get into Mark Matsky's beta capsule review right about now. Ages ago, in a long-lost part of the world, the Mayans worshipped a terrifying goddess. To her, men offered their strength and their devotion. Women offered the beauty of their bodies. Al-Tiki, the immortal monster. Today, courageous adventurers, dedicated scientists of both sexes, begin the exploration of recently discovered caverns buried in the very womb of the earth. From space beyond space comes force beyond measurement, energizing this monstrous mass of man-eating protoplasm that devours every living thing it touches. When her mate appears in the sky, the power of Kaltiki will destroy the world. You can believe what you like. Kaltiki's been reborn. Once a normal, voluptuously beautiful woman, she drove into a nightmare of horror and saw descending from the sky a titanic monster whose fearsome touch became a frightful curse. You think I'm drunk, don't you? All of you! I'm not drunk! I'm not! You've got to believe me! Please. It was right in the middle of the highway, 30 feet tall! Once she's in the booby hatch, throw the key away. That'll put you in the driver's seat. You'd make a wild driver, Harry. With 50 million bucks. What she saw was beyond belief until others, too, faced its hideous, uncontrollable menace. Attack of the 50-foot woman. Incredibly huge, with incredible desires for love and vengeance. Live from the Land of Light in Nebula M78, home of the mighty Ultra Heroes, it's Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review. Ultra 7 appears to have finally met his match, and it is himself. In episode 46, the showdown of Dan versus Seven. The story begins at a breathless pace, establishing that bizarre events have been reported near the seaside community of Cape Ira. The TDF launches a full investigation using a hydranger submarine to sweep the ocean floor, while Anne and Dan surveil a mysterious woman. At the moment she gives them the slip, the hydranger is destroyed by torpedoes, the obvious conclusion being that Earth, once again, is under attack. Dan traces the woman to a nearby lighthouse where he stumbles into a trap set just for him at the hands of the Salome aliens. In a rather surprising move, they free Dan from his restraints in order to show him the purpose of their underwater factory, 
the construction of a robotic replica Ultra 7, punctuated by the installation of its own eye slugger blade. The only thing the Salome aliens lack is the technological secret of the Ultra Beam, which they force Dan to divulge through the use of a torture device called the Talk Machine. The Anti-7, fully charged, is unleashed on a mission of destruction, while Dan, without the means to transform, is stranded in the Salome factory, which has been set to self-destruct. Meanwhile, the UltraGuard watches in astonishment as Ultra 7 blows up ships along the Cape before firing his beam at them. Will they be forced to take up arms against their former ally? The showdown of Dan vs. Seven is a reasonably entertaining entry in the series, featuring a number of spectacular moments, none the least of which is the reveal of Robot Seven being prepared in its undersea hangar. It's also punctuated by a number of tremendous explosions and the welcome return of a capsule monster, this time it's reptilian Agura who is summoned by Dan. However, Seven versus Seven is the marquee matchup and their battle does not disappoint, taking a few twists and turns before its fiery resolution. The weakest link in episode 46 are the Salome aliens who retain a human appearance throughout and despite coming up with an idea like an Ultra Seven doppelganger, just don't seem that menacing or maniacal. That's a minor quibble, perhaps, but enough to keep the showdown from achieving all-time classic status. As it stands, Ultra 7 is now firmly in the home stretch, with just three episodes left, so let's savor the sight of two Ultras going toe-to-toe and celebrate a series that ensured such tales would be televised for decades to come. For Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review, this is Mark Matsky reporting. try to suppress these thoughts, but they leak out in second level through the head wound of my third death. I was imperfectly repaired. Vote, please. Yes, a bit frightening, isn't it? Final votes. Four, nine. Against, 586. Sentence, George Saden will be aged five years. I have seen the future, and it does not work. Zardoz! They make you old, but they don't let you die. So what's to stop you killing yourself? I do, now and again. But the eternal tabernacle simply rebuilds me. Into a world of eternal life, Zardos brought the gift of death. Fight back. Fight for death. 20th Century Fox presents a John Borman film. Zardos! It took careful breeding to produce a slave who would free his masters. Welcome to paradise. Zardos. Rated R. Under 17. Not admitted without parent. Caution. You are approaching the periphery. From the creators of One Million BC. When dinosaurs ruled the earth. It is the beginning. The darkest age of all. 
the wings of a monstrous bird darken the sky. A great beast lumbers forth in search of prey. A beautiful virgin is marked for death. It is the beginning, a time of terror, pagan worship, human sacrifice. From across the shadowy abyss of time, Warner Brothers brings you... When Dinosaurs Ruled the Earth. Rated G General Audiences. Hello there, Monster Kid Radioheads. This is Kenny with a look at famous monsters of Filmland. Today we are looking at the new Shin Ultraman. FM never mentioned Ultraman in an article. But another Tokusatsu series did merit mention in the Super Kaiju issue 114 from March of 1975. Let's hear what Masao Kono had to say about Kikator in his four-page article with six photos. Just imagine a Japan droid. Kikator vs. Blue Kong by Masao Kono, the ultimate robot. An automaton that can move and think independently. A science fiction dream come true. This is Kikator, the amazing mech man from Japan. Kikator's only imperfection is his incomplete conscience circuit. The diabolical Professor Gill exploits this flaw. The power-hungry scientist heads the dark core, composed entirely of androids, and through the use of a catalytic flute, controls Kikator's electronic circuitry to make him perform evil deeds. In human form, the android assumes the name Jiro. The change from his bizarre self to a male human being is accomplished by dramatically swinging his right fist to his left breast. Then the left fist overlaps the right as it swings to his right breast. At these times, mechanical clicking sounds can be heard, indicating the metamorphosis is in progress. Finally, he raises both arms above his head and he's transformed. King of the Rocket Robots. To aid him in his battles, Kikator relies on some sophisticated internal circuitry. In order to use it, he has to unscrew and open up his stomach. In one TV episode, he employed his super circuitry to deactivate a dangerous bomb. In another, he analyzed poison water. And in still another case, he used electronic insides as a built-in radar unit. Besides intricate internal units, Kikator also has rocket boots. His Buck Rogers boots give him the ability of Superman to transverse an entire city block. He also has a supercycle, a motorbike that is capable of remarkable aerial maneuvers, including a mid-air loop-de-loop like a stunting airplane. Kikator is accompanied on his many exciting adventures by Mitsuku and Masoru, the daughter and son of Dr. Komoyoji the scientist whose genius was responsible for the construction of Jiro. Unfortunately, the good doctor has developed amnesia and has been accidentally separated from his children, so the trio is constantly on the search for him. Another regular character of the series is a funny man who is a master of slapstick, a kind of Japanese Stan Laurel. He was hilarious when he ran into the Carmine Spider in a thrilling adventure on a mountainside. What has made Kikator so successful is the constant succession of monsters he fights. For instance, Blue Kong. The story was very well done, 
In the Kong episode, the fact was brought out that the precious conscience circuit is located in Kikator's right shoulder area. In a fight, one of Blue Kong's deadly missiles strikes Kikator in that vulnerable area, and Mitsuko and Masuro have to locate an android repair shop for Jiro to remove the missile lodged in his shoulder. A trap has been set at the shop, and while Jiro lies unconscious, the menacing Blue Kong begins to remove his conscience circuit. Another monster matched against Kikator was the Green Mammoth. Its special weapon, dry gas. Catching Kikator momentarily off guard with a girl hostage, the Green Mammoth sprays the gas. The vapor is especially dangerous because Jiro's left arm has been damaged in a previous fight, and the freeze gas can now enter his system through the opening. As the gas begins to take effect, Rust slowly begins to spread like dry rot throughout the android's complicated internal system. Only the quick thinking of Mitsuku, using her father's knowledge, saves Kikator's life. In the end, his BEM-type eyes are seen happily flashing off and on, indicating successful repair. One of the best stories featured Gold Wolf. Gold Wolf was an android with a less complete conscious circuit than Jiro's, sent by the Dark Core to kill a Dr. Tato Koro. Gold Wolf's conscious circuit, however, temporarily overcame its evil orders and he was about to help Kikator when fate dealt the wolf a tragic blow in the form of Professor Gill and the flute that could force him to kill. Little as he liked it, for Gold Wolf had become his friend, Kikator had to fight him and destroy him. The last scene showed tears trickling down Kikator's metallic cheeks. Even an android can cry. And the fans are crying for more Kikator. There are a couple of episodes of this on YouTube if you are interested, and later on, an anime was made from the same concept. That is all for this week's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. We will have more next time. For MKR, this is Kenny saying sayonara. Seven young people shipwrecked on a mysterious island. The island was deserted. Not even birds or animals dared to come here. What did they find? Hey! Hey! Seaweed, fish, and turtle eggs. Anything we can eat, as well as snakes and lizards. Just let me finish. There's a lot of grass growing around here. You can eat the roots. You can eat the roots of a lot of plants here. Never thought of that, did you? They were driven to the edge of starvation. Food was scarce, and they were forbidden to eat the mushrooms that grew on the island. Fear and hunger turned them against each other. <gasps> I'll kill you. But Tango will help me live. I haven't been hungry since I left the ship. Maybe. Oh, help me. Help me. Please. Can't we eat the mushrooms now? That would really be the end of us. Akiko!
the horrible mushrooms. Matongo, the vegetable monster. Can they escape the dreaded Matongo? You'll find out when you see Matongo. He's the goinest ghost you've ever met. This ghost of Dragstrip Hollow. He's got the hot rodders vavoomin' and the hepcats zoomin'. Well, I'd like to think so. You know, she prefers hot rods instead of hot romances. That's because it's easier to handle cars. <laughs> this chick does all right with romance, too. But nothing stops this pirate's bird who learned his tricks from the ghost of Dragstrip Hollow. <laughs> Anybody want to kiss a duck? It's a perfectly rational explanation for all this. <laughs> Pepcats and hot rodders, they're all alive to the jive. This is Count Dracula, and I'm here to offer you a friendly warning. Derek and his guests often get excited, and occasionally this results in revealing key plot points of the movies they're discussing. You know how the children of the night, ah, I mean monster kids, can get sometimes. So consider yourself warned. And don't come begging to me to kill them for their transgressions afterward. I have more pressing issues to take care of, like that pesky Van Helsing. Two weeks in a row, and I've got Beth Westbo on the show. I have no other rhymes. How do you go? How's it going? <laughs> <laughs> uh, actually doing uh, quite a bit better than I was last week. Uh... I know some of your followers or close followers, Facebook stalkers, whatever you call them, you know, they love you. Um, I've probably been following along this week, and I, I do want to very first and foremost send out a giant thank you and love to all of our followers who sent lovely messages this week while I was ill and, and was my great doctor in an emergency room adventure. I am doing so much better now. We found a fantastic... Uh, treatment and really all my symptoms are very very quickly getting quite a bit better and I'm actually more hopeful for a, a full recovery than I have been in a very long time so thank you to everyone who reached out we we do love you all um I'm feeling so much better and I really appreciated all the love guys it really really buoyed our spirits when uh, we weren't sure where we were what was going on there for a while so thank you to all of you but yeah no doing pretty good and excited to be back yeah it was it was a lot. Um, it was uh, <laughs> it was a lot. I, I mentioned this on Facebook, and I've talked on the show repeatedly that I used to think I'd be a filmmaker when I grew up. Back when I was doing video production and film school and all that, I'd pull all-nighters all the time, no problem. I was 20 years ago, <laughs> not longer. 
I am not built for that. And the all-nighter we pulled in the ER, I'm still recovering. And it's been like, I spent all day today thinking today was Wednesday. Even though I even though I knew it wasn't Wednesday because last night was dynamite that we were recorded to watch tonight on Thursday, but I thought today was Wednesday. Tomorrow's Friday the thirteenth. I should have known but I, I got nothing. I'm man. But you know what? Despite all this, we still managed to watch two thousand twenty twos, two thousand twenty threes, I guess I guess it's twenty twenty two. Yeah. Last year in Japan. Shin Ultraman. Now, I've said repeatedly, kaiju films will always have a home on Monster Kid Radio. And yes, there are kaiju in the film, but I think it's probably more apt or accurate to say that Ultraman is a tokusatsu production. Are you familiar with the term tokusatsu? A little bit, but... Typically means special effects cinema. So uh, it's basically Japanese science fiction for the most part. So kaiju films are a subset of that. Um, Ultraman, Kamen Rider the the uh, TV show that Kenny talked about earlier in his look at famous monsters of film and that's all tokusatsu uh the Spider-Man Japanese show oh, Spider-Man yeah. mm-hmm. which I still want to talk about here on the show at some point cuz Spider-Man is so stinking cool Mighty Morphin Power Rangers um the Japanese stuff before it got turned into Mighty Morphin I forget what it's called over there but yeah y- you know the deal with that right yeah. it's all Japanese stuff that we went and shot a bunch of American stuff and, and yep but I'm a big fan of tokusatsu and I mean, I'm looking right now, just boom, just looked up at it. All those in the upper left-hand corner are all Ultraman series on my DVD shelf over there. And I've got a few more stacked to the side here. Uh, I'm a huge Ultraman fan, and I have been for a long time. Uh, I have to thank Kyle Yount from the late lamented Kaiju cast. Uh, He's still doing Collect All Monsters on YouTube and everything else. But, you know, he introduced me to the world of Ultra through Ultra Q and then Ultraman. And I've been a fan ever since. So as soon as I heard that Shin Ultraman was going to happen, courtesy of the people who did Shin Godzilla, which I really, really liked, I've been waiting. I've been waiting and waiting, and it did really well in Japan. So I've read multiple sources saying that it was either the highest grossing movie of 2022 or one of the highest grossing movies of 2022 in Japan. Um, Typically these days... Subaraya Productions will produce a film after they wrap up a series mm-hmm. to kind of kind of go out on top with a blaze or whatever. So there's been at least 15 Ultraman movies. This is the highest grossing Ultraman movie. I can I can see why. I, I've, in preparation for this, done a little bit of, of watching different uh, bits and pieces of things from the past of Ultraman and... This one in particular seems to be designed to appeal to the widest possible group and definitely as a way to reach out and draw in new viewers and new fans. And after seeing it, I have to admit I'm one. Ooh, ooh. Does that mean we get to watch Ultraman stuff? Absolutely. I love Ultraman 80. That's my jam. (laughs) It's my favorite, absolute favorite. The original Ultra Q, very cool. It's like 60s retro... X-Files, but with giant monsters every once in a while. It's fantastic. But Ultraman 80, oh, I love it. Love it so much. Came out in, we ready for it? Yeah. 1980. Oh, so it's like like an old movie then. Oh, I'm kidding, everyone. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Anyway. uh... (laughs) Well, it's funny that you should say that, you know, you always love kaiju films. Well, for a very long time. Yeah, I mean, it, it. My love of kaiju films. 
I was always aware of them, but they really didn't speak to me until, again, I go back to Kyle Yount when he was hosting a screening of Godzilla vs. King Kong at the Hollywood Theater. Scott Morris was in town, and he and I went. Um, Circa. It was after the start of Monster Kid Radio, so sometime within the past, however long the show's been going, eight years or so. Oh, that's so interesting, because I was just going to say that I really never appreciated or had seen enough kaiju films until about eight years ago uh, to have a real appreciation for them. I come kind of from a different place. My oldest daughter, Jin, has been studying Japanese for about nine years, and so about a year in, we started watching some kaiju films and really anything from Japan that we could get, but those were some of the easiest to get our hands on so that she could practice her language skills, and now she's at the point where when we watch movies, it annoys me because she hears the joke before I can read the subtitles and laughs, but <laughs> but back then, good fun, good fun. <laughs> no, we did ask her to watch an Ultraman with us, uh, but she had school stuff going on. Um, Which is more important. Stay yes. in school, kids. Get that college degree. I do hope she gets a chance to watch it at some point, because I'd love to get her take on it. Yes. As somebody who studies Japanese and is more aware of some of the cultural stuff mm-hmm. going on. Because while this movie does have some things that I think a worldwide audience can appreciate, of course it's going to be pretty specific to the Japanese culture. And I was talking about this earlier in this episode when we got an email from Kevin Slick about how movies aren't just movies. They're snapshots in history and time. And whether you're watching a movie from 1930 or 2022, you can kind of tell what's going on in the world when you watch these movies because you can see a representation, even if it's in the background, of the cultural mores and the norms, what's important to society, what's important to this group of people, what the prejudices are, what the superstitions might be, mm-hmm. the customs, all of that. You even made a comment while we were watching Shin Ultraman. There's a point where a character is handing things out to other characters and they're doing it with two hands instead of one. Yes, that was something I was very, very lucky to represent the United States in Shanghai, China in 2014 um, at the Shanghai International Friendship Festival as a part of the Beat Goes On marching band. I'm that big a nerd. I am a grown adult in the marching band, (laughs) y'all. And we had a fantastic time, but one of the things we learned was that you never hand anything to anybody with only one hand. It's very, very, very rude. It's like you're throwing it at them, basically. So always with two hands and consistently throughout this movie, of course, because the people in it were, you know, mostly born and raised in Japan. They do those things and they're just little things that, you know, I've noticed and it can help introduce a culture that maybe we're all not familiar with as whether you're an American or or from any other part of the world. We love all our monster kids, but introduce you to something new and, and give you some insight into, you know, how other how other people live their daily lives. And in the end, I think we all end up seeing that we're, we're not that different. Sure. Despite the little things like that. And I find that fascinating that you can pick up these things. And, you know, we're watching a movie, a Tokusatsu movie. We're going to watch Ultraman beat up some kaiju. But things like that kind of sneak in. And that's just, that's just neat. And one of the things that I love about watching film. So you've had no experience with Ultraman for the most part, I mean, maybe a few things when we decided we were going to do this, but that's it. Yeah, I haven't watched anything in full. Only little bits and pieces and a few videos by other creators just to kind of get a basic background in, in the character of the world and such. Did you watch or have you seen Shin Godzilla? No. Okay. So Shin Godzilla, 
was, and forgive me if I'm wrong here, folks, and please call in and correct me. My understanding is that Toho saw what Legendary was doing with Godzilla over here in the States, and they're like, hmm, we want some of that. Mm-hmm. And they set out to make Shin Godzilla, which is fantastic. So good. So much stuff going on in that movie that's just amazing. And not just the kaiju stuff, but again, a look at Japanese bureaucracy and what they have to do and criticisms of how the government works when they're trying to get something done. Yeah. And just Shin Godzilla is fantastic. Shin Godzilla did so well. And I don't know if this was part of the plan from the beginning or not, but they reached out to Subaraya Productions or Subaraya reached out to them and, hey, let's make Shin Ultraman and Shin Kamen Rider is lined up next. I have no experience with Kamen Rider. I have a couple of years to get ready for it. <laughs> uh, but it's also one of these long-running television pro- programs that fortunately I can get my hands on and watch a lot of. It seems pretty cool, though. Mm-hmm. So that's where Shin Ultraman kind of comes from. It's not connected to Shin Godzilla, despite the fact that it opens with the words Shin Godzilla for some reason on the screen uh, before it quickly shifts to Shin Ultraman. But it's not in the same world. It, I, at least it's not presented as such. Um, but I, I appreciated that. I think mm-hmm. it's cool uh, because of that Toho connection. A game that I play on my iPad. <laughs> Let me pull this up real quick. Um this, this kaiju battle game that I play on my iPad for free that's refusing to load up right now. It's an official game from Toho. It's called Godzilla Battle Line. Mm-hmm. And they, because Ultraman was done partly by Toho, Ultraman's a character in here. Uh, so you can play Ultraman. You can play Zeton. Nice. You can play the invisible kaiju we were talking about earlier, um, whose name I'm blanking on, but uh, we were trying to make sure we have... Oh, Naranga. That's it. Yeah, we had Naranga in the game. So when those characters actually turned up on screen, while they're not completely original kaiju, they are. Mm-hmm. They do appear in previous Ultraman stuff. This version of them I was familiar with from the game. Sure. So it was kind of cool to see that. Um, I don't think there were many new kaiju introduced, just different takes on them. Okay. Fair. Which, which was cool. I mean, that's kind of what the legendary Godzilla films did for the most part. I mean, there's the Mutos, but all the other... Godzilla kaiju creatures are all revamps of Rodan and Ghidara, Ghidorah and Mothra and all them. So that's that's kind of cool. But um, I, I do want to say something that I found. Somebody who had a chance to see this movie in New York mm-hmm. at a festival last year, uh, the director, Shinji Higuchi, was there. Oh, wow. And apparently he got up on stage and apologized to everybody. That is so Japanese. Because of... <laughs> Apparently, he thought there was a lot of anti-American sentiment in the movie, and he wanted to apologize to the New York American audience that they're about to watch a movie in which Americans are made fun of, not represented correctly. I didn't pick up on a lot of that, but maybe that, like you said, maybe it's a cultural thing to be overly sensitive to it. I I, I think with the Japanese culture, there there is always an eye being kept out to not insulting people and to not taking away honor from what I've learned from my daughter and and you know my own interactions. I went to high school with um, a young lady that was an exchange student from Japan for a year, and so we and we were close friends and were on a sports team together and stuff. So. I learned quite a bit from her too, and there, there is always that thought of: is what I'm about to do 
going to make someone else uncomfortable or look bad and and if so maybe I won't do it or if I do that and then I realize later that I need to apologize for that because even if what I said was true and I still stand by it my intention was not to hurt you with those words and they they do make some assertions about for instance what the American government might do with a giant super weapon that could potentially destroy the world I gotta say they're all fair. Everything they say is totally fair and true and definitely something that could plausibly go on. So I didn't think an apology was necessary, but I can see where he might have thought an apology was necessary. He, he also apologized for any anti-American stuff that appeared in Shin Godzilla as well. Um, there's an actual, there's actually an American character in Shin Godzilla okay. and comes over to kind of consult or it happens to be there. And Shin Godzilla's a lot more about we aren't allowed to have our own military. How are we supposed to defend ourselves when Godzilla turns up? Mm-hmm. Okay, the one Godzilla, Godzilla turns up is what makes the movie palatable to kaiju folks. Right. But I imagine that's a real concern. We're not allowed to have a military. What are we supposed to do if something happens? It probably is a real concern. You know, I, I think for the last 30, 35 years in this world, we've had a time of relative peace. There certainly have been... Wars in very specific locations, but I don't think there has been the overarching threat of world war. And we're finding ourselves now in a time where big players are making big moves without necessarily considering where that's going to go. And I think the Japanese people have probably faced that for a lot longer than the rest of us because they did give up their entire military, navy, everything after World War II. And they got a big, scary country sitting right up on their border, you know, who who doesn't have those self-imposed restrictions against violent behavior and and violent response to incidents. And so I can see how culturally that would always be somewhat in the mind of the Japanese people, and so it would show itself in their art. And this is definitely art. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I didn't pick up as much of that in Shin Ultraman, but like you said, it was like, well, what if the Americans get their hands on this tech? Oh, boy. Yeah, so, yeah, I could see that, I suppose. I could see that. Um, I know that I said in the earlier part of this episode, again, responding to Kevin Six email, I'm not the kind of podcast that just goes through and is like, and this person was in this, and he did this, and this, and this. I'm not going to read you the internet movie database, but I do find this fascinating, that somebody who worked on this movie, I believe there's a co-writer as well as a couple of other things, I'm going to mispronounce the name because I do not speak Japanese, Hideaki Ano? Worked on this film, but what's cool is in 1983, mm-hmm. this dude made an Ultraman fan film. Oh, so, I love that. That's like Peter Capaldi playing Doctor Who, right? Which is not the first, which is not the only time Doctor Who's coming up in this episode. That's true. <laughs> um, but I mean, how cool is that? This dude who loves Ultraman so much that in 1983 he makes a fan film. Oh. And back then it was harder to make fan films because you're actually dealing with film that you've got to get developed and it's more expensive and. All the technology that you don't have access to, he and I've seen it. I've played it on the on the street. So basically, he's the Ryan Reynolds of kaiju. Sure. What? No. Wait. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. But I think it's cool that he got to work on Shin Ultraman. Very cool as well. Uh, the other thing that I think is super cool about this, uh, there was no man in a suit. Technically, it was a digital con- construct that was Ultraman. Yes. However. One of the guys that they brought in to wear the motion capture suit was Ben Ferreira, who was the original Ultraman. Oh, brilliant. 
So they brought him in that. to That's do some great. of the poses and all that. And I've never met Ben Fury. I've never met any of these people because I've never been to G-Fest or anything like that. But everything that I've heard about him and seen with him on YouTube and interviews and all that, dude seems super cool. So how awesome is that? That's amazing. And, and you know, that is the really cool thing. I, I don't know how much your listeners are aware of the advances that are being made in motion capture right now, but I am amazingly lucky to have recently gotten to do some motion capture work myself as an actor here in the Portland area. And I would love to tell you, well, Derek doesn't even know what it's yeah, for yet. I'm, it's killing him, I'm sure, it's, to some degree. You're but... about to mention the NDA, and like I don't. Um, yeah, that's it was a scary NDA, y'all. So I, I'm not going to tell you a thing about it, but I will say that as a nearly 42 year old woman, I was able to make things happen on a screen that I could never do in real life. I even as a former gymnast, so. It's pretty. It's a pretty cool technology, and it's going to allow a lot of people to participate in the creative process, both in terms of people that are older, but also in terms of people like myself that have some sort of a disability or, or thing that, that might not get them looked at by a casting director. Otherwise, it's going to allow a whole lot of other per- people to participate and bring their talent and their creativity to the process, so... Definitely watch for more of that, and if you see films using it, encourage it, because it's a great way to get more people involved. Yeah, when it's done right, it looks great, Mm -hmm. you know? As much as I'm all about, you know, the physical effects and using real makeup and models and whatever, if you can do it well, as much as I, over the years, have groused about a lot of things George Lucas has done to Star Wars, there's a documentary from Star Wars to Jedi, The Making of a Saga, and, and in it, and these words are just burned into my head, where he is talking and he says, special effects are just a tool. Yes. And if you use those tools right, yeah, you're going to make a great story. And I think, despite the fact that this was not a guy in an Ultraman suit, I was invested. I was all in. Uh, the kaiju monsters were digital. A lot of the model work was digital using the same technology they use on things like the but Mandalorian. not all of it? Not all of it. And That's I correct. felt like they did a fantastic job of seaming them together. There yeah. were definitely times where I was going, wait, are we CGI now or is this a model? I'm not sure. It, yeah. And really had to, to think about it. It was a good mix. Yeah. It was a really good mix. The one thing that didn't mix well for me, and I, I mentioned this whenever somebody asked me about Shin Godzilla. Mm-hmm. Never talked about it properly here on the show, I don't think, but as much as I love film scores and film music, especially the older stuff, mm-hmm. I love the Ultraman music a lot. It's got that surf-inspired title theme. It's got just some really cool stuff. Godzilla's got an iconic Godzilla march or whatever, yes. and they use a lot of it in Shin Godzilla. They use a lot of original Ultraman music in Shin Ultraman. I don't feel like the blending of the classic music and the modern music works as well there's there's a delineation between the two for me um i kind of let it go about half an hour into ultraman or whatever it didn't like disrupt my enjoyment but it's the one thing that i think that didn't blend as well for me as a film score geek so i see what you're saying and i definitely that's the thought i had kind of on my first viewing now i'm gonna show everybody what a nerd i am because i watched it again today partially i didn't have time to fully watch it but i did have time to go through and and at least rewatch some of my favorite bits, and I wanted to clarify a few things in my mind. Um, and when I went back and watched again, 
it very much starts out in the old school, visually, yeah. sound-wise, everything. As we move along, when we get to the younger characters, and I suspect what they're doing is sort of a handoff to a younger set of, of, of actors and characters, because it is such a long-running series that just like Doctor Who, <laughs> y'all I'm a Whovian, you're going to get the references, sorry. But um, <laughs> as time goes on, it has to progress, and there has to be a, a way of handing off that isn't just we blow up all the old characters, so... I guess we're going to need another Timmy. That's an old reference for a lot of you. <laughs> wow. If you watch the old show, Dinosaur is another favorite of mine, including puppetry and stuff. Um, that Yeah. Wow. I guess we're going to need another Timmy. is not always the way to hand off a franchise. And this way, they've handed off the old to the new. And when I went back and rewatched it and I kept track, we get the old sound when we have the old scenes and we get the new sound when we have the new scenes and they... I see what they were trying to do. Even if, as a viewer, it's not your preference, they definitely had a plan. It was not accidental. And every time we see those hideous 60s goldenrod chairs, plush chairs with the doilies on the backs, we have the old music again. I every single time. I loved it so much. Y'all, these are the ugliest chairs. I want a secret lair with I those chairs. I was putting them in a haunted house. They're so ugly. Oh, I, I see what you're saying. I think with the Shin Godzilla, at least, it's a little bit more scattershot. Sure. We have more modern music, and then we go to the classic, mm-hmm. the Fukabe stuff, and then more modern than Fukabe again. You're right, though, in this. Um, we did kind of get away from a lot of the original music uh, and sound, even sound choice or sound design. But then at the end, during the final battle, we're like, oh, yeah, remember this is Ultraman? We yeah. got to have this iconic <laughs> shot. And we've got the the shot of Ultraman doing that weird zoom up into the ca- you know, at camera yeah. with the colored background and all that. It's like, oh, yeah, remember this? Um, this is not a movie that you need to be familiar with Ultraman with, in order to enjoy. Not at all. There, there's no continuation of anything from the TV show. It is a standalone thing, just like Shin Godzilla was a standalone thing. Although, gosh, it's been so long since I've seen that, I can't remember if it's one of the ones that recognizes the 1954 film as part of the canon. There's a lot of them that did that. Mm-hmm. Like, once we got out of the 90s, they did a bunch of movies in the 2000s or whatever, and they're like, yeah, all the stuff that happened before didn't count, except the first one. And Shin Ultraman does give a slight nod that way. There is one character that is identified as being from another reality universe. It's not entirely clear to create a link yeah. to other Ultraman. That's in true. Other... Yeah, it's true. But again, you don't need to. You don't need. Yeah, that. not at all. I could have looked up nothing and, and still had a fantastic time watching it. You know, as soon as the character turned up. And I saw which character it was. I knew, mm-hmm. and and I liked oh, that. Oh, you did partic- a good job of not saying anything. I I liked that particular character. Just yeah. I liked the design of you know. Yeah. Um, while all the characters in this Ultraman, the various kaiju, and all that do come from the TV show, they updated them so much that again, you don't need to know what this kaiju does. Gomez, what does Gomez do? And what's that guy do that turns invisible? And what is a Zeton? You know, you don't need to know any of that. Um, I realize that by even naming some of the kaiju, I guess technically those are spoilers. I don't want to spoil too much about the movie. I will have played the spoiler warning before this conversation, uh, just in case. Uh, I know this movie is going to be a little difficult for people to see at this point uh, because of its very, very limited theatrical run that I think is over by the time this episode comes out. There are ways to see it. I'm not going to tell you. 
but I'm not going to support promote you doing so, but there are ways to see it. Uh, and if it's anything like Shin Godzilla, somebody's going to pick up a Blu-ray and DVD and absolutely home media release. In fact, I would be surprised if it's not available on Amazon Japan here very soon, mm-hmm. uh, because it already had a theatrical theatrical run over right, there. Right, yeah. It's just done at this point. So, uh, like even that fan film that I was mentioning, mm-hmm. that I believe is available on Amazon Japan streaming. Oh wow! Although it's all over YouTube and all that, and I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes. It's fun. It's we'll fun. have to watch it. Yeah, it's fun. I I love kaiju fan films in particular. There, that's a there's a very specific subset of fan filmmakers that have worked in Japan and make these fan films. I've seen a handful of them. Some of them are eh, okay. Some of them are better than what the next film in the series ended up being. So, <laughs> uh, specifically, there's a really cool Gamera fan film. Gamera. Um, well, so the '90s Gamera trilogy. Yeah. Fantastic. Okay. It is. I love Gamera. I know. I love the original Gamma. <laughs> I love all the Gammers, but the 90s Gamma films are my favorite Gamma films. Um, I'd say they might even be my favorite kaiju film from the 90s. They are so good. <laughs> and then somebody made a fourth Gamma film, and it was from the studios, and it wasn't as great. But there's a fan <laughs> film that carried on that particular... Anyway. Uh, anyway, some people that worked on those Gamma films worked on Shin, on Shin Ultraman. Brilliant. That's kind of where I was going with this. I'm not going to even try to tell you the names, because I'll get them wrong. <laughs> Um, this movie did feel a little structured like a TV show put together into like a movie. There's like three different acts or, or monsters or threats to deal with. Okay, this is happening, this is happening. Okay, this is done. And the guy just bugs out. He's like, oh, things are about to get interesting. I'm out of here. And then a whole new thing that kind of builds off of that, but now it's a whole new threat. Yeah, if it's it, Shakespeare. It's like a three-act play. Well, I mean, it's a three-act thing, <laughs> but it also felt like it could have been, if it needed to be, and somebody probably could do a fan edit of this and turn it into like a series, like a TV series. Oh, absolutely. I've, I've seen people do that with the MCU, the entire MCU. Oh, my good Lord. Okay. Yeah. Um. That's, that's a lot. Um, I yeah. can also see, you know, you'd brought up that on several of the Ultraman series, you'd, you'd have a series and then we'd end with a movie at yeah. the end of the series. This to me almost felt like I've got a movie that's going to lead me into a series. It did. I could see that. It, you know, hey, so things are pretty final at the end, but not so final that they couldn't spin it off. That's what I'm saying. It there, there were scientific options left open. True, true. Speaking of scientific, the SSSP, I love them. Um, <laughs> this is a staple. This is a trope of Ultraman. Yes, there's always some group. Usually, it's like a, a government science patrol kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Every once in a while, you'll get. And I can't, Mark Matsky, you're going to have to help me remember this, but there was one series not too long ago, like within the past 10 years, five years, I guess, where it wasn't like a government agency, but it was like three content creators <laughs> that were like studying spooky stuff and putting it in on their YouTube channel. Okay. And they're the group that are investigating and kind of quote unquote working with Ultraman. Um, but usually it's a government group. Um, but that's put together. They are a government group, but they don't have the same oversight. Like they walk into one of these sites with one of these kaiju, and they're like, "Yep, we're in charge now." And everyone on the site is like, "Yes, you're in charge now." Yeah. And, and there's no, there's no question at all. Even though everyone that's not part of their group is it treats them kind of like 
ooh, they're spooky and unusual and we're not really sure, maybe a little crazy and, you know, yeah. we're not really sure what all they can and can't do. And Well, so much so that at one point when things start to go sideways for everybody, they get arrested. Yeah. They get thrown at, I mean, okay, they're put in a hotel room and given a ton of snacks, but... Okay, they get Japan arrested. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it's, yeah, it, I, I did like that. I like I like the different personalities there. You know, sometimes you don't get the distinct personalities in this science squad or whatever. I the very think I said it at one point because they're so young, they feel a little power rangery. Yeah. And I wouldn't... That's just at the beginning till we get to know them, but... I wouldn't be surprised if that was not by design. Sure. Power Rangers is a mega franchise, and I I don't know any... I've never watched it. It was... I was a little old for it when it came out, so I never got into it. I have a sister 10 years younger, so... It was a little more on my radar, you know, watching her, but very much in the way that in some of those old Power Rangers, not necessarily the big fight scenes, but in when they'd be in the lab and figuring things out or at their computers and figuring things out and the way that they worked as a team. Each person kind of had a specialty or something that they were the best at. And everyone on the team acknowledged that somebody else was everybody else was the best at something. Yeah. It was a it's a neat collaborative um work environment that I think in a lot of Western and especially American films, when you have a team, you have a leader. And that person is very much in charge and usually knows the most about everything. And then they have assistants, basically. And this didn't feel like that. This There is a leader, but even the leader knew when other people had more information or better information about something. And yeah, that. yeah, I think I called him the chief, right? The chief. The yeah. leader. His role seemed to be less about bossing people around and more about all right, I'm the one that's going to go do all the paperwork. Yeah, he was he was doing the bureaucracy, and he was yeah. making sure that their vehicle showed up to, to take them wherever, and that yeah. the plane was fueled, and that they had their laptops, and right. you know, that kind of stuff. Um, a couple of the other tropes that did not appear in this that you see in a lot of Ultraman, especially now, mm-hmm. toy tie-ins. Ultraman now, Subaraya Productions is still the creative driving force, but... Bandai Toys has a huge part of ownership when it comes to Ultraman. Mm-hmm. Part of the reason why every two or three years they start a whole new series, because that means a whole new flock of toys to put on the shelf. Absolutely. And it's it's so bad. I mean, it's so I love it. I love Ultraman. But it's so, I own five Sonic screwdrivers. They, they they yeah they know what they're doing. So I don't own <laughs> any of this stuff. I, I have a couple of little vinyl figures, but that's it. But a lot of times with the Ultraman stuff. They'll be like, okay, we just found this trading card somewhere, and if we do something with it, we can gain the powers of that particular Ultraman. Well, guess what are being sold in the store? All these trading cards. You know, or or a trading card reader that you put the trading cards into to get a recording about whatever it's about. So are you saying you didn't think there were as many obvious toys? Because I saw two prime examples and several smaller options on the rewatch. Well, I was going to say there there is one that they keep cutting to, and it's a stuffed animal thing. Yep, you pointed that one out. They keep cutting, like the first time I thought, oh, that's cute, okay. And then it kept happening. And there, there's a number of periods in the movie where the camera angles and the cutting is very frenetic. <laughs> yeah. Almost unsettling and too fast for this American to read the subtitles. Um, and and, for, and they always threw this thing in. And I thought, that's cool. Is that a logo? Is that a mascot? Is that available on the shelves in Japan? How do I get one? 
do I really want one? It'll turn into a cat toy. I think that would be great on Instagram. You know, my brain is just spinning. But you said there's more than that. Oh, absolutely. Did you not catch the wicked ray gun thing with all the curly cues? Ah, okay. If that's not under the Christmas tree with the KFC in Japan next year, I'll eat my hat. So are, are toy guns a thing in Japan? I don't know. No, they aren't, so you have to make them. The guns are very much not a thing in Japan. Hey, in fact, most police officers don't even carry guns in Japan. Japan. It's very, very rough. Even the Yakuza don't carry guns in Japan. That's the mob if, yeah. mafia, if anyone doesn't know. But uh, they don't carry guns as a rule in Japan. And so if you're going to sell something like that, it can't look like what an American would think of as a gun. It has right. to be very, you know, dressed up and swirly and alien and that sort of thing and there's there's pretty cool one okay. um i would also say the the beta capsule is an that's obvious true. go-to toy that's true that's true maybe again maybe that's just the hoovian in me going oh there's this sonic screwdriver i got it yep. it does it does seem like a, a collectible for sure you could exactly. do a collectible of it uh, a lot of the ultraman series for all the laser beams or spacium beams or whatever they don't have guns it's usually they shoot laser beams by crossing their hands mm-hmm. or a lot of swords Yes. So you get big bulky, and they're they're ugly swords. I they're not cool looking at all. They're big and bulky. Have a place to slot a card into it, or a little figure that they found somewhere. It's like, oh, we can put this in and get the powers from this kaiju. You know, again, it's it's all yep. very obviously Bandai saying we're going to make a bunch of those this year for Christmas mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, but I could see that with that gun in the beta capsule for sure, for sure. And then I'm also wondering, did did Lego sponsor this movie, or was that a director choice? Because good lord, the amount of Lego on the the scientists' desks, just as personal items, was kind of insane. Yeah, wh- one of the members of the SSSP is clearly a Star Trek fan, a Lego fan, a geek, uh, <laughs> a geek, a geek of of American toys yeah. and pop culture. Because there is an Enterprise model and all that. And I thought that's that's kind of cool. That's kind of cool. Um, I don't know if that was thrown in there for us American fans or yeah, what. Yeah, remember what that's called. There's a word for that in Japanese. I'll have to ask my daughter. And if anyone knows what it is, go ahead and write in and let us. There's a word for Japanese people being obsessed with American pop culture, and and there's a oh. name for folks who are. It's not and, otaku. It's um, because that's that's somewhat somewhat that's you know, similar. Yeah. But yeah, anyway. So if you if you know that word, write write in and let us know. But, um, yeah, that, that character definitely loved uh, some Western culture. <laughs> Pop culture, Pop for culture. sure, for sure. Well, and it was the original Enterprise, too, so, you know, yes. he, he had incredible taste. <laughs> no bloody A, B, C, or D. I guess these days it could be an E or an F, right? Oh, I'm so old. I know, <laughs> I know. Oh, wait a minute, you made the old joke earlier. What are you talking about? And I'm not saying you're old. Never mind. <laughs> Never mind. Um, I just, I I didn't know what to think about it when we, when we got done watching it. I've been thinking about it a lot today. And the more I think about it, the more I think I really did like the movie a lot. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's going to supplant how I feel about the Ultraman TV shows. Ultraman 80 in particular. <laughs> He's a teacher and works for the Science Patrol That's great. and becomes Ultraman. Oh, hang on. In other countries, 
being a teacher is a respected and well-paid job, to be clear. <laughs> Just not here. Well, it's only like that during the first season. Second season, they cut all the actors that work for the school, and they never reference him being a teacher again. But, you know. Look, if you can handle teenagers, kaiju are no problem. My favorite episode is where he's jamming with the students to try to connect with them better. That's like, they form a band, and it opens with him, like, plugging his guitar and jamming with the kids. I love it. Love it. Ultraman 80 is the best. Mark Matsky, if you're still doing the Ultra, uh, the, the Beta Capsule review, when it comes time to do Ultraman 80, I cannot wait for your take on it, man. I love it. I love it. I know you got a lot to get through first, so you're about to start Return of Ultraman, which is the third series, which at that point, I believe is still the same timeline, the okay. same universe. As the Ultraman series progresses, we... And I don't think they ever call them like a multiverse or anything like that, but there are old, other dimensions. Mm -hmm. Like there are different Earths and each Earth has its own Ultraman. And then there's always a big crossover episode where, mm -hmm. you know, either a villain from a previous season series turns up. And there's one where the, the main villain, the same actor, is playing now like one of the heroes in this, the, the, the next series. Mm -hmm. And he's not the same character until the Ultraman from that previous season turns up in this world and he's like what are you doing i got to take you down i guess and he's like no nah, i just got tired of being a bad guy i thought i'd try to be a hero for once cool Funny. so you know yeah they don't they don't really specify if it's yeah. a multiverse or just a lot of worlds or different yeah. universes or different realities what it is that's another one of the things that i found very similar to doctor who that as as that david fourth doctor who fifth I, I don't know at this point but as david tennant's 10th and now 14th Doctor, I guess, would say it's complicated. <laughs> True. Okay. Okay. So while we were watching it, you mentioned Doctor Who a few times. Yes. School me. Who me, baby. <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> I, I am a big fan of Doctor Who. For those of you who don't know, we're coming up on the 60th anniversary. Again, a show that started as a very small television show, small private studio. Um, has grown and grown and grown over the years as a huge fandom, I, I believe, just like Ultraman in a way, and has had some movies and... Yeah, I clearly peaked with the Peter Cushing films, right? And then it's all downhill from there. Wow, yeah, whoo, yeah. Maybe. I, I've uh, only seen the Peter Cushing films. Oh. I've not seen any other Doctor Who. Yeah, we, we, we haven't uh, initiated you in into the rights of the TARDIS yet, but there are a lot of similarities. You know, you, you have... Ali you have a main character who's an alien, who's an admitted alien presence of some sort. He's got advanced technology. He has a handheld device that he uses to do amazing stuff with. A small handheld device that he uses to do amazing stuff with. Literally, we were talking about Naranga earlier. We've got an invisible, destructive uh, being that I think is really just lonely and misunderstood, in my opinion. And Ultraman comes in, and because he has that alien knowledge, he knows what to do against these kaiju, like Naranga. He knows how to fight against them. That matches up perfectly with, actually, the uh, monster from my very favorite Doctor Who episode, the Doctor and Vincent, or Vincent and the Doctor, where we have a Crefeus, a big, invisible, lonely, destructive, misunderstood monster, and it takes the alien with the superior technology to figure him out and, you know, solve the situation. I think in the end, what I really noticed the most, you know, you look at things like this movie had more diversity, which we can talk about in a little bit, than I would have expected. 
It really highlights a lot of things about the culture that it's set in. There are many worlds. It's the best of what it is to be Japanese in the way that Doctor Who is the best of what it is to be British. It is trying to put a best foot forward to the world of these are all the best things about our culture. We consider other people's feelings. We apologize when we do stuff wrong. We, we take the blame when it is our fault and we step up as a group and work together. It is really the, the best of all the things about you know, Japan and their culture and their history and, and as a people. And I think it's it's a wonderful kind of love letter to the world to say, come and learn about us. And, you know, the world is opening back up and travel is opening back up. I know you and I have a real dream to go to Japan and Heck yeah. stay in the Godzilla Hotel. Oh, yeah. and, and Go to the Ultraman bar. Go to an Ultraman bar. Um, and it really feels like it's hitting at the right time to tell the world, you know, we have so much to share, so much art and so much love and so much as a people come and share it with us and enjoy it. And and watching this movie can be a, a first step for that in a way. Yeah, I, I could see that. And something that I really liked about the movie, too, is that it, it did take. I hate to use the word grown up or mature, but. I'll be honest, the Ultraman stuff, a lot of it is kiddie fair. Sure. You know, it's, it's the toys. It's the yeah. toys and everything else. Maybe at the beginning it wasn't as much, but it really kind of turned into that. And the Godzilla movies kind of ebb and flow in terms of like dark, serious movie. Like I, I've heard Godzilla, the first Godzilla, compared to Frankenstein, for example. Sure. It's dark. It's heavy. It's got some real heavy stuff in it. And then you get Son of Godzilla, you know, which is totally different. Or you get some of this other stuff and it's kind of ebbs and flows and all that. This old Shin Ultraman, I'm sure kids dig it, but I never felt like I was watching a kiddie show that was put together to sell me a bunch of toys. Not at all. I think this this really was um, a project of a labor of love, if you will, for the fans of Ultraman and, and the fans of kaiju films as a whole, and, and as well as, you know, to, to introduce it to the world. But it's something that, you know, you as a longtime fan of Ultraman could easily bring someone like me who had no background knowledge into and, and enjoy together. And that's pretty special because there's a lot of franchises that get eight, nine, ten movies down the road. And like, I don't know that you could just start on Fast and Furious 73. I think you'd have to go back to the beginning, you know, so I don't know what number they're on. I don't yeah. is, is that a fandom we have to go into? I mean, are you a fan of those or? No, I'm not going to sit and watch. If, if there's going to be cars driven fast, I'm doing the driving. I don't want to <laughs> sit and watch Vin Diesel flip cars. I, I, not, not dogging on Fast and the Furious. It's all good. I love Fast and the Furious, actually, y'all. I'm kidding. But um, they do some of the best empowerment of women out there in some of the fil- in some of the action. I saw films. the first one. You saw the first one? Good. I saw the first one when they were like regular people just yeah. cars and not superheroes taking their sh- their cars to space stations and such speaking of empowerment <laughs> of women in action films uh what what do you think of the uh, ladies in ultraman what that i that's a good segue it, it was really good i appreciate it <laughs> um attack of the 50 foot woman much that was awesome susan okay for 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 fans of the Late, uh, the the quite a few years ago monsters and Al- monsters versus aliens which I've this. never seen you had to show me uh, a clip of it and it looks adorable definitely go watch it if if you have kids grandkids 
nephews, nieces, neblings, whatever they happen to be, um, you know, kids, friends with kids that just need more good monster culture in their lives. Definitely check out Monsters vs. Aliens, but there is also 50 foot over there. And very, the, as soon as I saw her ad, was what I thought. Susan! I was a little disappointed in the repeated attempts at an upskirt shot of the 50 foot woman. You know, you never see, you never don't see, you don't even see underwear. Okay? No, no, no. But it's like, you know, the camera's bouncing around so much, you could have bounced away right before she walked in front of, like, over the camera. We didn't need to fly underneath. We, we really didn't. And I know it's all covered in char- shadow and darkness, but I mean, okay. But it was kind of cool to give to see her destroying some, you know, yeah. some damage, as it were. And, and that is a powerful woman. I also want to give another to the fact that right off the bat, I think it's the second kaiju, as they're going through before we even see Ultraman, they're showing some kaiju and how the defense force is taking care of them and they're talking about how they're doing. They give credit to brilliant woman scientist. Yeah. I struggled with that one for a second because I'm like, isn't she just a scientist? But you know what? I think they were trying to make the point that a woman saved the day. And that was awesome that she developed the technology to defeat the monster. That was fantastic. The only place I have to make a complaint on, there was not a single female government official in the government official scenes. I kept looking. I kept watching. And other than the gal taking notes, not a one. Now, to kind of go back to what I was saying earlier, is that a problem... Or is that, well, I'm going to call it, is that a problem? Is that, is there a lack of that kind of diversity? That is a reality in Japan, particularly in the higher levels of government. It's something that just like here in the United States, I mean, we have far fewer female representatives in our Congress, uh, you know, than would be equal to the distribution of women versus men in the country. So it's something I think we're all working on. But I just would have liked to see them throw at least one gal in there just to like, have some representation or something it, it was very much those scenes were very much a good old boys club but they had to sit in those hideous chairs so if i remember right in shit godzilla uh one of the characters is kind of driving the defense of japan is a woman mm-hmm. and i believe she even there, there's some political aspirations that she expresses about becoming a higher up in japan government and all that which i thought was kind of nice but no, you're right. And again, I don't know enough about modern Japanese politics to know if that was accurate as to how it is now or, for lack of a better term, a failing of the storytelling. It sounds like it was less that and more, well, that's kind of how it is. So this is what we got. Well, and I would give the filmmakers credit, too, in that well, clearly a lot of the action in this film takes place sometime in the modern world, you'd you'd be hard-pressed to pin down an exact year. They didn't use anything that was so specific as to say this has to be in the 2020s, I feel like, or this, or it could have been in the early 2000s. And it could easily, I feel like, be in the 2030s or the, maybe even the 2040s. They they kept some things neutral enough that I think this movie is going to hold up for a long yeah. time in that respect. You know, I'm thinking, I don't remember seeing smartphones uh, the few times where there's like scenes where they're figuring something out on a computer, it's so... They're chunky military laptops yeah. that look the same as they did in the 90s. Well, and even the toys. What Star Trek Enterprise is it? It's, it's the original. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if it was like the Enterprise D, we'd be like, oh, it's probably 90s then. But no. So, I mean, yeah, good point. So that was nicely done. Um, 
first, I with with the team, the SSSP. Yeah. There's a couple ladies on there, brilliant, and they are clearly brilliant ladies. And <laughs> at least one of the dudes on the team is kind of terrified of them. You can just tell every time he looks at him, he's like, "Oh, yes, okay, yes," and you know, just catching his breath. Yeah. Um. They they did a good job, and they're a little bit protected by the guys, but. But one likes to slap everybody on the butt. So but one we, also slaps everybody on the butt. Like and herself. And, and herself. And herself, yeah, to be fair. That's like her so. thing. All right. And I found an interesting phenomenon, which I first thought was just the women, but on the rewatch, I discovered included the young men on the SSSP team also. Okay. In any given scene, whoever you're supposed to focus on is more made up, better costumed, and looks hotter than they do in any <laughs> other scene. So best girl starts out. I'll just call her best girl because then we all know who best girl is. So best girl starts out pretty, uh-huh. but not hot. But by the time she's the focus, she's hot. The lipstick has gone red. The clothes have gotten trimmed in more. She's hot. Later on, second girl, we'll call her, gets more focus. And she starts out real mousy. I mean, Mary and the librarian over here. Yeah, yeah. And by the end, she's changed her glasses, her lipstick, her hairstyle, her clothing. And I'm pretty sure her foundation, because we get a whole different... I went back and forth with the fast forward and rewind. And like, this is again a Japanese beauty standard. She gets paler, y'all. She gets paler when she's the focus and now clearly has someone a little bit in love with her and stuff. Puppy dog love, mind you, but... She's the one that was mowing down on all the snacks, too, when they're... Oh, yeah, early on, she's just shoving stuff in her face. There's no no daintiness at all, but then, yeah, then then she she does get a moment. When when they're told that they can go home, you're you're released now? She's like, but snacks. Then she's scooping up to take with her. Like... Best prison, by the way. Best jail, by the way. Best prison ever. Hanging out in a Japanese hotel with a bunch of snacks. Exactly. Cool. Yeah, they they their snackage does look like a 10-year-old giving $100 at the Dollar Tree. <laughs> For sure. Uh, I had, I In the end, I had a fun time with it. I, I would like to see if it's going to get a Blu-ray release. I have been slimming down my media, my physical media collection quite a bit, but if there's some cool special features on this thing, I'm all over it. I want it. Oh, absolutely. I want it. Um, I mean, I'll never get rid of my Ultraman collections. I could put it right up there with that. Uh, I know that I've slowed down on adding, like I'm five or six series behind now. I need to- Oh, goodness. Slowly catch up. I'll put it on the wedding registry. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) But I do have the Australian Ultraman up there. Very proud of that one. Really? There was at one point an attempt to make Ultraman a worldwide phenomenon. So they, for whatever reason, in the 90s, and it looks like it shot like a low-budget version of Hercules, that style of syndication, they went to Australia and said, let's make an Ultraman. So they did. Lasted, I believe, a year. And it's got, like, the 90s feathered hair. Everybody's got the Australian act, because it's Australia. So, Wait, it, so it's TV. It's, it's TV show. Yeah. And how long are the episodes? Ooh, I don't remember. Are they like 30 minute, hour? I, I would think it's probably on the 45 minute mark, so you had commercials. Well, I will certainly ask 
maybe before the end of spring here. I, I happen to have a, a visitor from Australia yeah. currently. Uh, my my childhood partner in crime, my first cousin, but we were nearly like Patty Duke cousins, y'all. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I didn't think about that. Visiting from Australia for a few months. I'd, I'd love to see if she'd come over, watch an episode with us, and then give us her opinion uh, for, oh, for your audience. Fun. That'd be fun. Uh, it'd be fun. I'm friends with a guy who worked on it. Uh, Facebook friends. We've chatted a few times, and he actually has worked on some of Christopher R. Mims' movies as well, doing stop motion. Uh, Norman Ying, I believe his last name is. I'll double check that and correct myself in the end if I got it wrong. But he got to design some of the ultra kaiju in there, which really were a lot of scuba diving suits with stuff glued to it. But that's kind of what the original Ultraman suits were. So, yeah, you know. Yeah, I didn't become a thing. And then there were, you ready for this? Okay. I don't know if this will blow your mind. Out. There were rumors for a long time they were trying to do it here in the States, starring Will Smith. Well, that's probably not going to happen now, is it? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there were, there were reports that he supposedly said Ultraman was his favorite superhero, and they're like, oh, well, let's do this. But that, but you know he's got a kid that's an actor. Yeah, but I I don't know how accurate those reports are because the people who were making those reports were the people that kind of sort of stole the rights to Ultraman for a long time. Mm-hmm. This is where the copyright nerd in me starts to come out because yeah, I love this yeah. stuff. Listen to you. Yep, yep. <laughs> <laughs> there was a whole period where there were uh, there's another entity that claimed that Subaraya gave him the rights to Ultraman. So he was making his old Ultraman stuff and was stopping the production of new Ultraman stuff in Japan. And it went back and forth and forged documents or documents that were not believed to be truthful. And yeah, it was a mess. So anyway, that's been resolved, by the way. Oh, good. Yeah. Now, one other thing I wanted to ask. Yeah, let's get back to Shin Shin Ultraman. You seemed very impressed with the alien tech particularly once we left Earth, I'll say. And the, the, the big guy, the big yeah. guy hand. Uh, the size. I, I did size. not expect the size. Sheer, uh, yeah. Enormity. I mean, Ultraman's supposed to be a big guy, right? He's he's ultra. He's big. He's, he's a giant dude. He's, you know, fighting kaiju. He's got to be sized appropriately. He's towering over buildings. And that character is in my Godzilla game that I play on my iPad. Um, and yeah, he's a bigger dude, but he's not much bigger than the other kaiju in the game. He was huge. Kind of makes Ultraman look like an ant. Yeah. Yeah. I was I was shocked. Um and he's got I mean, he comes from the original series. That character, that kaiju is in the original stuff. But he's just a guy in a suit. He's not huge. Yeah. This guy was huge. Um Yeah. Uh it was it was something. I guess he had to be big to do what he was supposed to do before Ultraman stopped him, but yeah, holy cow. It was huge. I liked it. I liked it. I thought it looked great. I thought the design looked good. You know... Excellent use of Spacey in 133. Yeah, exactly. As much as I love dudes in suits, I mean, that's... Yes, we talked about motion capture and all that, and, you know, I follow follow what's going on as the world of special effects. I watch the Corridor Crew YouTube channel, you know, all this stuff. And I appreciate and respect that. But there's just something cool about a rubber suit. There is. I didn't feel myself missing that with Shin Ultraman. Oh, good. 
So it transcended my uh, rubber suit hipsterness, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> so there's that, I guess, point one for Shannon Ultraman for there. Okay, fair enough. Um, I didn't know about the, the Ben Ferreira, and I know I'm mispronouncing that, I apologize, motion capture until today after we saw the movie. Otherwise, I would have been a little bit more like paying real close attention, like, oh, look at that. Oh, oh look, it's Ben. It's, it's the guy. I recognize that pose. <laughs> uh, anything else before we wrap up because we've been talking for uh, about 15 minutes or so uh no i mean that's that's pretty much everything i had in this one other than to say that that was for me a fantastic introduction into the world of ultraman and uh, it just reasserts my determination to watch more kaiju films more ultraman yes. more you know Japanese media in general and that really excites me because I love a new fandom folks I, I hit the jackpot man you know we're, we're doing this recording now after we got done watching this week's AEW Dynamite wrestling getting her back into wrestling and she's loving it dude it is awesome so yeah I hit the jackpot man uh, the two movies that I've watched this year so far The Raven and this the Raven twice in this. Uh, and both I got to share with this most important person in my life, and she hasn't run away yet. So, folks, I'm working up to Manos. I'm working up to it. <laughs> One of the things that I love the most about Monster Kid Radio is you, the community that has sprouted up, grown around the podcast, and I put the call out to whoever saw Shin Ultraman, if they wanted to share their thoughts about Shin Ultraman via voicemail, I asked them to call in and leave us a voicemail about the movie. Let's listen. And the spoiler warning from before is still in effect. Still have some minor spoilers. Kind of impossible to talk about this movie without them, so. Greetings, Derek and the gang. This is Mark Holmes calling from uh, the East Coast. New Jersey is my home. And I just like to report that I saw Shin Ultraman Thursday night in my local theater. I saw the dubbed version, and uh, it was a pretty good crowd in the theater, but I believe all the hardcore Ultraman fans went the night before and saw the subbed version. I just wanted to know that I saw a movie where Japan was under attack by Kaiju, and a gigantic silver hero came to save the day and I was a very happy boy. I grew up watching Ultraman back in the early 1970s on reruns and I've been a casual fan through the years and have taken a deep dive back into Ultraman in the last couple years uh, starting with Ultra Q and uh, revisiting Ultraman during the uh, lockdown and now I'm working my way through Ultra 7 and then I catch various episodes of the other ones on Pluto TV, they seem to show them in any kind of order they feel like. So, uh, talking about the movie, it starts off with a bang. There are several monster attacks in the very beginning of the movie, which I really enjoyed. The movie took no prisoners. It just started, and we were thrown into the action, and I really enjoyed that. There is absolutely no fluff in this movie. It's just scene after scene after scene, and it keeps moving forward. Uh, we are introduced to uh, Kaminaga, who uh, we all know becomes Ultraman very early in the movie. 
And then we are introduced to the uh, beautiful Asami, who becomes Kaminaga's partner, and uh, kind of forces herself on him to be uh, a team, which I thought was really cool that teamwork was the uh, big uh, item in this movie, that uh, the SSSP worked together as a team, they trusted each other, they were friends, and of course they were willing to uh, go all the way and back up one of their members. Uh, what I liked about the movie was the uh, constant action. There was comedy, but there was no silly characters. The comedy was not forced. It was just something that, you know, two people seeing a situation, one might remark and the other one gets a chuckle out of it. As for that was the movie was played straight entirely, which I really appreciated. Uh, a kind of a downturn for the movie for me was it seemed like four episodes put together. Hey, it's uh, Sebastian Godin, Seb here, and uh, I'd seen Shelterman before when it had its North American premiere at uh, Fantasia Film Fest, but I was very happy to see it this, uh, this past week on Wednesday uh, with a big audience, packed house, all very enthusiastic, and, well, obviously I love the movie. I think it's a beautiful love letter to not only Ultraman, but to Showa-era tokusatsu in general, and I think that both Shinji Higuchi and Hideki Anno exceeded expectations on it. Hope everyone else had a lot of fun. Hey there, this is Steve Sullivan calling about Shin Ultraman. Or, weirdly, as it was on the copy I watched, it said Shin Godzilla first, and then Shin Ultraman. Why? Who knows? I really enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun. The retro parts at the start of it were very, very much like Ultra Q. I'm pretty sure that they were using Ultra Q music and cues from other Ultraman series as well, which were obviously really recognizable. I like the fact that the kaiju that they fought were, uh, they were, I guess it's all CGI, but they really looked like rubber tube monsters still, and that that was kind of cool. Uh, it was good to see some of the old enemies coming back. It was good to see kind of touchstones on the original series. I've always been a bigger fan of the beta capsule than anything, so the beta capsule being there was cool. Uh, it seemed in some ways like a compilation of all the series episodes, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. I wish there had been one more rubber suit monster fight late in the movie, but, you know, you take what you can get, and what we got was a pretty darn cool re-up of Ultraman. I don't know if they're going to spin a series from this, or if it's just one and done, or what, but uh, it sure was great to see. It's great to see this Spatium Beam, and all the other cool Ultra stuff, and a great intro for people that haven't seen the series. So I hope everyone could catch it. I didn't have much trouble with the subtitles, but I've watched enough Ultraman that are, there's little pieces of Japanese that I understand, so sometimes if things really fly by, I could still kind of catch what they're doing. So anyway, I have no idea if this is going to be early enough for you to get it into the show this week, but whenever it runs, it runs, and you and I will do the rallies again soon. Dr. Soon, Steve Sullivan. Signing off, beaming out. Hey, Derek. This is uh, Paul, a certain mailman, retired from uh, Rochester, New York, currently uh, doing time in Mesa, Arizona with family and friends. Just got out of seeing Sheen God, uh, I was going to say Sheen Godzilla. No, Sheen Ultraman. Uh, and it was really good. Now, I'm not a big Ultraman fan, don't know a whole lot about it, but I do love me some kaiju, especially if it's on a, a really big screen. 
And this thing really delivers. It's like they packed like about five episodes of Ultraman into one movie with an overarching plot line. But uh, the uh, the team uh, dedicated to helping defeat monsters is uh, just battled one after another by uh, kaiju and aliens and enemies and it it just comes one right after another it's really fast it's really fun and uh <laughs> and then funny in times too so uh yeah i i thoroughly enjoyed myself it runs almost two hours and i got there about half an hour early and the uh people producing the presentation threw in some uh trivia some interviews with the uh lead actor and the director and it was really good so uh totally totally worth it so uh this is me signing off stay healthy and uh i'll keep listening bye-bye well that brings us to the end of this episode of monster kid radio thank you for being here thanks for listening thanks for hanging out with beth and i and ultraman and everybody else who called in thank you to those who called in Quick apology to Mark. Mark, I am so sorry. The voicemail line has a three-minute limit, so your voicemail got cut off there at the end. But I appreciate you calling in nonetheless, man. I appreciate everybody calling in. If you had a chance to see Ultraman or have any thoughts about Ultraman or anything that we talked about here on the show, please call it in at our voicemail line, which is 360-524-2484. Or you can email me at monsterkidradio at gmail. Com, and I'll include your feedback in an upcoming episode of the podcast. Now, this information is available on our website over at monsterkidradio.net, where you're going to find links to our Facebook page, Facebook group, Twitter, Discord, Patreon, Reddit, Twitch, and I think that's it. But it's all there. Also over there is our Amazon affiliate link. If you are shopping on Amazon with any of that leftover Christmas money, please consider using that Amazon affiliate link, that button there, Helps us out. Doesn't cost you anything extra. It just helps support Monster Kid Radio by taking a penny or two out of Bezos' pocket and putting it into ours. And that's really helpful. Enough of y'all do that. It really helps out with the show. It costs $40 a month to host Monster Kid Radio. So really, just anything you can do to help out would be greatly appreciated. Speaking of our website and everything that's over there, our links to our Facebook page and all that stuff, the Amazon affiliate link and all of that, I think there's still a link to our listener survey. Now, I know I said I was going to shut down the listener survey by January 12th, but it's still up. So if you want to go participate in the survey, letting me know what you like about Monster Kid Radio, what you don't like, what you'd like to hear in the future of Monster Kid Radio, I'd love to get your feedback so I can incorporate that into the plans that I have for 2023 and beyond when it comes to the podcast. So please consider clicking on that link, which is tinyurl.com slash uh, let's see yes MKR survey 2022 so tinyurl.com slash MKR survey 2022 a couple of ads on our website as well for some new shirts that we have available Hawaiian style shirts $35 that does include shipping here in the US if you are an international customer and would like to order something to have shipped to you there let me know we'll work something out but these shirts are awesome. I love them. One is the Monster Kid Radio Flying Saucer logo in a repeated pattern. And one is our homage 
to the Crestwood House monster books that inspired so many of us monster kids back in the day. So please check that out as well. What's coming up next week on the show? Well, once again, I don't know. But this is also another reason why you want to follow us on Facebook, because as soon as I normally figure it out, I try to post it on Facebook to let folks know what's coming up on the next episode of Monster Kid Radio. Please make sure you're subscribed to the podcast wherever it is you listen to podcasts, and that way you won't miss it. So no matter what's coming up next week, you're going to make sure you get it into your ears straight from us here at Monster Kid Radio. Until next week, remember, the Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. My name is Derek Kim Cook. I'll talk to everybody next week. Ciao.